KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Right now, podcasts big and small are working together to get new people to try new shows. Many Americans, not you, of course, since you're listening to a podcast right now, but many Americans don't even know what a podcast is. So we're trying to change that through a movement called Hashtag Tripod. That's Hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D. All you need to do is recommend podcasts you know and love and use the Hashtag Tripod. So here's what I want to recommend today. First, a podcast I've listened to for years, the Horrible Imaginings podcast with host Miguel Rodriguez. Then, The Projection Booth with Mike White. And then something brand new from a fellow KPBS colleague, The Mist with Nathan John. Take a listen and let the world know what you think with hashtag tripod. So spread podcast awareness, like a disease, but a good one. Okay, so now on to today's podcast, which is going to include an Oscar winner. Always I doubted that the Academy will select this film, you know, but when we, we, we were nominated, I felt very proud and very surprised and very honored, I think. And an ornithologist. Well, sort of. This week marks the 24th annual San Diego Latino Film Festival, and that's a perfect excuse to look at Latin cinema that's so good it's scary. Really, really intense, jaw-dropping themes Every single one of them, I think, used the word metaphor at some point. So they're all thinking metaphorically. They're all thinking about telling a story that's really about something else. I see that coming a lot from the filmmakers in Mexico. I live in San Diego, which is a border town, and that influences our film festival in the best possible way by bringing us new and exciting Mexican cinema on a regular basis as proof of why you need to go to film festivals and support film festivals. I'm going to share with you an interview I did in 2001 with Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu that I did because his first film, Amores Perros, was playing at our San Diego Latino Film Festival. The festival also gave us our first glimpse of Guillermo del Toro, Alfonso Cuaron, and many more. There's nothing to match the excitement of seeing fresh new talent that you know will break out. Iñárritu was nominated for a Best Foreign Film Oscar for Amores Perros, and has since won a quartet of Oscars, including a most recent one for directing The Revenant. For this podcast, I want to look at Latin cinema, especially from Mexico, and consider where it's been and where it's going, and to use the film festival as a leaping-off point. First, I want to share my interview with Inuritu, and then I'll speak with my fellow film geek, Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. He just programmed the Un Mundo Extraño sidebar for the San Diego Latino Film Festival. That sidebar includes the film We Are the Flesh, for which Inuritu helped mentor the director. And finally, I'll speak with festival programmer Moises Esparza about the role of a film festival in turbulent political times. I interviewed Inuritu in 2001 after Amores Perros had made a splash in Mexico but had yet to be distributed in the United States. 
San Diego Latino Film Festival Executive Director Ethan Bontillo recalls how the film did at the festival. Yeah, the biggest film of uh, the 8th Annual San Diego Latino Film Festival was the uh, screening of uh, Morris Perros. Both times we screened it, it sold out. We did not really expect, we knew it was a popular film, we knew there was a lot of hype. But it was the biggest film of the festival. We could not have enough seats for everyone. We screened it twice, and each time, you know, hundreds more than could fit into the actual building came. And it caused the most stress for our film festival, actually. It was the film that really, you know, we had so many people eager to get into that. Now, when you originally booked it for the festival, did it have the Oscar nomination at that time? No, it was before the Oscar nomination, and so that's a big surprise. It just helped us, and it's, I know it helped the film a lot. But for us, we booked the film because uh, we're so close to the border that we we hear what people are saying, you know, because it's already been screened or distributed in Mexico. And so a lot of our uh, audience members come up to us and say, hey, you have to screen Todo el Poder, or you have to screen Por la Libre, or you have to screen Amor Esperos. And so that's why we booked the film. Inuritu couldn't attend the film festival, but I was able to set up a phone interview with him. It began in a pretty typical manner with us testing the line. Okay, one, two, three, test one, test two, test three, one, 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 two, three, four. But it was quickly apparent that he was at some sort of noisy event. And, oh. and then I saw the... I, I Excuse me. What? Are there... Uh, we're getting like a lot of noise coming through. Let me, let me, let me, let me go outside, right? Okay. Wait, wait, wait a second. <laughs> so for the rest of the interview, poor Alejandro ended up standing on the street outside the restaurant. Yes, can you hear me? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, better. I, I, was, I was in a restaurant, sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm out. Okay. So that's you much... want to begin again? Yeah, if you can just start uh, again okay. telling me about your background. Okay, well, basically I start uh, as a DJ in a rock and roll radio station that was called WFM. I, had, uh, I was like five years there, and, and I had a three-hour show daily. And then in 91, I became a creative director, and I began to write ideas for TV spots, holidays like Father's Day and Mother's Day and that kind of stuff, and I began to direct that idea. So I began to write and direct and produce 30 seconds, one-minute piece for television Mm-hmm. in film, and um, I began to, to learn there how to, you know, my tools and some skills, and I began to explore some genres, some techniques and styles. In 95, I direct a 30-minute piece uh, for television that was a pilot. I studied theater from 94 for, uh, to 96, to, you know, to become more closer to the, to the actors and how to direct actors in theater. I was a musician too. I began to score some music for the films, uh, very bad films, but <laughs> but uh, you know I, I'm a frustrated musician basically. And and in, in the eighties, I promote a lot of rock concerts, and basically that's my background. Do you think that there's kind of a new wave of Mexican cinema going on right now that you're a part of? I don't know if it's a new wave. I think that it's. Uh, I think there's a new situation. I think Mexico has become a little more. You know, the, con- the economy has been a little more uh, balanced, I think, a little more not as crazy as the la- last three years. And a lot of theaters have come here, and so now there's a lot of theaters, and the private investors are a little more excited about their, about it. And, and you know, the, the audience in Mexico, the people in Mexico are really more hungry to see themselves in films. So... I think there's a lot of things that are going on in the context that 
allow uh, the the directors to make better films, better stories. And there's like the things are became to change a little. I, I don't think it's a new in a wave, you know. But I think it's it's getting better, better little by little. I think. Well, it just seems like I've seen a couple of um, other films, Toto El Poder and uh, Herod's Law and your film, and they just seem to have um, kind of a different kind of energy and style to them than what I've seen before. And I don't know if that's because we just don't get that many films. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think there's a little, this is, this are different in the spirit. You know, I think the, I think there have been so many changes here, politically speaking, socially speaking, that I don't know, always when a countries in crisis always the culture is better i don't know why but you need to maybe to express more things and more things are happening to the people inside and 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 that's i think it's a it's the beginning of something that will happen here i think it's the beginning but i agree with you i think that the films maybe ones are better than others but you know most of them has a, a, a new a new point of view i think Maybe it's just a younger perspective that's coming through than before. I yeah, I think so. I think I think the older generations, you know, uh, were very resentful, and they don't have too much choices, and they don't have money, and they don't have exposure, and they don't have, uh, you know, freedom, political freedom. So they were more like, you know, like more like a nostalgic Mexican cinema, you know, like tried, you know, like more picturesque, more romantic, or more. Uh, stereotype kind of films, and they they show um, you know a, a very romantic side of Mexico, but uh, now I think it's a little more real. You know, there still haven't been that many films from Mexico to gain like real worldwide attention and make a real big impact like on the American mainstream or in American theaters. Do you have any concerns that? The image painted of Mexico City in your film and in Toto El Poder with the amount of violence, do you worry that that might stereotype the city city, or, or create an image that, I don't know, a more limiting image or something? I don't think so. I'm not worried about that. Some consul from Tokyo, some Mexican consul, you know, <laughs> was worried about that. I mean, he asked me that, that, that about, like, are you not, you know, you don't feel ashamed that you are... Uh, uh, you know, a show another kind of Mexico. That's not Mexico. What animas you are showing of us in all the world? And really, I get mad because you know, first of all, I'm not, uh, I'm not the ambassador of tourists of Mexico. You know what I mean? And I don't think I, 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 I'm lying. I, I think this is part of Mexico. Of course, it's not that Mexico is like that. It's, 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 I saw a Scorsese film, and I think that all the New Yorkers are with guns and are Italian and are. Gangsters, you know, it's like ridiculous. I think that it's part of a reality, and I think that people, you know, I think that the audience is more intelligent sometimes to think that that's not the reality, the total reality of Mexico. You know? And that kind of people, I don't care if they think that. I, you know, I, I'm not worried about that. I think it's a love story. That's all. It's a fictional film. It's, it's as if you know, the United States appeared with a film of students killing students in the university, and I think that in the United States universities, the students kill each other. It's like ridiculous, I think. Now, how did you feel about getting the Oscar nomination? Was that a surprise to you? Yeah, I was really surprised. We have the honor to be awarded in, in such different countries. We have, I think we are the most awarded film in this year all around the world, and I have been traveled with the film almost all around the world, and, and I'm very surprised about the reaction of the people with this film. 
And I thought that was a possibility, but at the same time, I doubt, always I doubted that the Academy will select this film, you know, because it's not a very academic film. But when we, we, we were nominated, I felt very proud and very surprised and very honored, I think. For the foreign film Oscars, each country has to select a single film to submit. So was there a lot of jockeying for position in Mexico to get your film as the one to submit? Well, but what's basically, you know, what the Academy of Mexico that chooses it, and I think like 80% of the people consider Amores Perros to be the one that they should send, I think. Obviously, they are the ones that disagree, but always happen, I think, you know, in all the countries that will happen. So, But basically, I have a a good response here, not only by the Academy members, but, you know, the audience was an incredible reaction. In the summer, last summer, we were the number one summer film here in Mexico. It was a big success, so we have very lucky in that. Would you say you've been influenced by other Mexican filmmakers, or are your influences coming from something outside of film or outside of Mexico? You know, I, the, the director that I really like is Jorge Fons. Mexican director that I really admire a lot. I think he, he's a really great uh, actor, like director. Yeah, that mostly my, 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 my influence mostly are from American films. The way you depicted violence in your film was very forceful. I mean, there it's not that there was a lot necessarily of scenes with violence, but whenever you did use it, it had a really powerful impact. How did you decide on how you were going to depict that? Well, I think I, I, I want to take out the frivolous part of the violence that normally is very classic in, in American films, no? You know, I try to, to take out the, the glamour or the frivolous part or the superficial part of the violence. violence. I, I didn't use the violence to entertain people or to, to make people laugh because I cannot laugh about violence. I don't think... There's nothing to laugh about because I live in a violent city and I know the painful consequences of the violence. So I try to explore the violence in in a very emotional and the, and in and in the human consequences with with humanity and with tenderness to the characters, with understanding. I don't know. Uh, like I, I felt some uh, weak part of them and I understand the the the. the, the the animal nature that we have, that we are basically, in some way, we have these both natures, the divine nature and the animal nature, and sometimes we are dealing with that. And for me, it's not a violent movie. For me, it's an intense movie, you know. For me, violence is what you see in Gladiator or what you see in The Cell, for example. That's violence that is very glamorous, and, you know, there's people killing each other, and sometimes it's a very incredible and beautiful shots, but it's, you know people cutting the head to other and blood everywhere. That's a violence that for me doesn't mean nothing, and that's scary for me. Well, I think you definitely succeeded in doing that. I mean, I think it, it had a very forceful um, impact. I also wanted to ask you about the characters you created, because they all seemed to to have contradictions and to kind of pull us in two different directions. I mean, we feel sympathy for them, for some of them. And like, just when we're feeling the most sympathy, they'll turn around and do something kind of unexpected that, you know, reveals some of their flaws. I mean, even the dog, you know, here you sympathize for the poor dog being shot. And then, you know, the man comes home and he finds that the dogs killed all his. When you were creating them, I mean, was that something that was prominent in your mind or was that did you just feel that was a, a realistic way to create these people no no i think we we, we we really want to 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 explore that 
complexity of human beings and, 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 and animal beings. You know, I think that humans are, we are very complex. We are very contradictory. We are not good or we are not bad. We are good and bad at the same time. You know, the, the world is not black or white. I think it's very complex. Uh, it's multiplex. It's a, it's a three-dimension of, you know, more than dimensions can be in only one scene or only one act of the human being. So we were trying to, to, to explore that. Our premise was that, that the characters are not archetypes or stereotypes of these, oh, the, the bad ones, the, the good ones. Uh, I really don't care about that films. I think that, you know, the good ones against the bad ones. I, I think the world and the human beings are, you know, more complex than that. So that's why we were trying to, to get that complexity in the film. Mm-hmm. How do you see your film fitting in to kind of if you you know if you were to look at kind of the way Mexican film has grown or changed I mean do you see your film as kind of signaling a new direction or do you see it kind of playing upon themes or styles that have already been well established I think and I don't want to be pretentious but I I feel that my film is a it's something new for Mexico. I don't think that no film is new. I think nobody invents nothing. No I I'm, I'm not discovering nothing but I think that in the Mexican panorama of cinema, I think this is a special film. This is a, a unique film, you know, and it's a new film. It's a, it's a new way to tell the stories and, you know, the language and, you know, all of the style and, and, and the matters that we, we, we talk about it, I think, is like a different point of view, I think. How did you decide that you wanted to have this car crash kind of be the pivotal point around which these, these stories all kind of collide and, and converge? Well, we, we always thought since the beginning that we should have some explosion in the middle, you know, like a big bang explosion that really can affect all the stories. And that big bang will be the, you know, the, the thing that will, that will affect all and will connect all the stories. That means, you know, the vulnerability and how fragile, how fragile mind the human beings are and it's something that can happen to rich, poor, king, servants. You know, car accidents are a terrible thing that can happen to anybody, even for Lady D. And, and, and you know, it's uh, something that you get crossed with somebody that you never know. But from, down, from, 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 from that moment, you will know for all your life. And you will have to do something with that, kind, with that guy that you get the accident. And it's, uh, at the same time, it's the revenge of the technology. I think man thinks that you know, controls the world, but suddenly the technology <laughs> makes revenge in men, I think. Do you have another project lined up at this time? Uh, basically, I'm working now in another project with the same screenwriter, with Guillermo Riaga, uh, which, is, uh, which is called 21 Grams. doesn't have to do nothing with drugs. <laughs> 21 Grams is the weight that you lost when you die. It's about guilty and forgiveness, and it's a very complex story again. And we are very excited about it. We have already our first draft, but I think this year I will take for you know relax a little and to 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 find my my next project. So has Hollywood approached you to come there to make films, or are you at all interested in that? Yes, I have been you know having some meetings since last year. I think with some different studios and a lot of people that has been very gentle with me and, and they like my work and they like to work together but until now we haven't found something that we that we can work together so I think until the, until the day that I find something exciting and that we I can share the vision with the studio or with somebody 
until that moment, I will, you know, I will take the risk. But uh, that's hard, you know. There's nothing easy to happen. Does it interest you, though, to, to come to Hollywood? Yeah, I will be interested. Not only in Hollywood, I will be interested in France and Spain that I have been, you know, mm-hmm. getting some some stuff there, too. But uh, it's, it, it will depend on the story. It, uh, for me, filmmaking is only a, uh, an extension of the human being. So it will be me anyway. But I think that the most important thing is the story, to find the right story, and I don't care. It's not because, you know... Yeah. Film is just about emotions and images. It's not a, there's no frontiers. There's no language frontier. You know, so you know I will be able to shoot the film in Vietnam or France or anywhere if, 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 if there's a good story anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, if you had to um, kind of sum up your film for the little blurb they put on a poster or something, uh, how would you summarize it for for people who haven't seen it? I mean, you used to make thirty second spots, so you're you're okay. used to that. <laughs> Well, first of all, I think I, I, I will say to people that, you know, it's a, first of all, it's a very entertaining film. It's, a, it's very entertaining. There's a lot of actions. There's a lot of things that happen to the character. So everybody, everybody, everybody should go to the restrooms before start the film because they cannot, you know, go out from the film. And then I think that it's, it's, it's a film just only about three love stories about love, about death, about redemption that cross in a car accident and that they will find a very human story that they will go out of the cinema with a lot of questions with no answers, only questions and and with a very human emotional experience from their heart and spirit, I think. And, you know, sometimes I always think that people always go to the cinema because they know what to expect, but this kind of film the kind of film that when you arrive, you don't know that you expect that, but you like it. It's like a Vietnamese food. Sometimes you something you always expect of your favorite restaurant the food that you like, but suddenly when somebody takes you to a Vietnamese restaurant, you eat something that suddenly you realize that it's a new flavor and you like it. It's something that you didn't expect it, expect it but you like it. And this is the kind of experience of this film, I think. So it's an experience. It's a roller coaster experience. So Was it your film that I had heard about where... Um you were using different scents and smells for the characters? Yeah, well, I, I was obsessed by the smell. Everybody told me about that the Mexico, Mexico was a character, and I, did, and I didn't show Mexico. If you realize I, I don't have any sight of Mexico, you cannot recognize my film, but I was obsessed about the, the smell of, of the film, and I was obsessed by that. And, and then a writer, Vicente Leñero, wrote something in the newspaper that said that is the first film that you cannot see in Mexico, but you can smell it. So I, I, I like that because I was interested in that. And, and yeah, I, I play with the characters. I play with the actors with some, you know, perfumes to get attracted. And, and I use all the tools to get a good acting, I think, because they are surprising. So I, I, I use all the animal instincts to, to get to that emotion, I think. So, and, and was this the case where you used the? I think I had heard that the actor and one of the actors and actresses weren't really kind of striking sparks. And <laughs> yeah. yeah, she, the model in the second story, because you know, as you know, the, the second story is about the man that leaves the family to be to begin to live with a model. But they, in the real life, she was not very attractive, attractive, uh, attracted to to him. So. I asked her which kind of perfume her real boyfriend uses, and and I put that perfume in the actor the next day, and really works a lot. 
It's a very animal instinct. <laughs> Can you just tell me why or how you came about choosing the title and making the dogs, you know, kind of run through these stories so prominently? Well, because we always find that the dogs has a lot of things to do with men. I think that our our nature, uh, the human nature and the dog nature is very close. We can be very humble, very humility, very loyal, but at the same time, we can, we can kill if, if somebody cross our line. And the animals, too, they, the dogs, too, you know. And, and you can meet and know people by observe which kind of dog he has and how he treats the animals. So I love the animals. And at the same time, I think, the, as I wrote the other day, the, this is the, 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 the greatest dog story ever told. <laughs> we were trying to really get a real dog stories and the owner's stories, you know, what happens to the dogs happens to the owners. We, we, we began to explore about the, the brothers, Cain and Abel in the first story, Cain and Abel in the second story. The first one are fighting because love because of love, common love. And in the second and the third story, the brothers fight because power and ambition. And we were trying to explore those things. And then the dogs, you know, the, the dogs fight. Uh, the human at the end fights. They, they are really, the, 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 the man really at the end converts in a dog. We are at the end, we are no more than animals in some way. So, you know, we are trying to use dogs as mirrors, I think. You mentioned you brought up the brothers fighting and the notion of Cain and Abel. Do you see any kind of biblical themes running through that as well? Yes, yes, of course. Of course, I think it's a very biblical thing. I think brothers fighting is something that happens since the man is man, I think. And the father figure is, you know, affects all the family, you know. The father really can be a very strong figure in the family. And uh, I think for me at the end, that she was kind of a redemption of himself, you know what I mean? It's like, and it's not that it's a, it's a moralistic or religious. In the Bible, you can see, I don't know, 90% of the stuff that men are dealing with nowadays. That's why Shakespeare, I think, is a great writer, because he, he always deals with that kind of primitive matters, you know, very primitive, about love, passion, jealous, betray, you know, hope, you know, redemption. All that kind of things are very primitive and are not the same things that really affect men since the man is man, you know, I think. I don't know if you're aware, but um, they showed it here at the San Diego Latino Film Festival, and mm-hmm. it had two completely sold-out screenings. And, people, and, and did people like it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, because they screened it on two separate nights, and so there were, I think there were like a thousand people for a, a 600-seat theater. <laughs> Wow. Who came and I'm, uh, glad. I'm really glad. And I'm, then they, I'm, I'm very happy, and I would like that the Americans see this film. I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I hope so. I thought it was very yeah. good, and especially considering it's a first film too. I mean, I think that's a fairly monumental thing you <laughs> you tackle. Not you didn't want to try something easy for your first one. <laughs> <laughs> I like the complexity of things. I think the risk to take a risk always is better. I think. I don't know if it's just coincidence or what, but it seems like there are a number of films right now that are really playing with, you know, it, it's like kind of the Jean-Luc Godard notion of every film has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. And your film, and I just saw Memento, and they seem to really be playing with that linear structure and saying, you know, we don't have to. Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's nothing new. You know, we were inspiring William Faulkner in the, the novel Sound of Fury. And it's something that Kurosawa did in 50, 51. So it's nothing new. I think it's something that we are rediscovering. 
And my theory is that we are so fragmented, you know, we, we are playing with the computers and the, you know, the, the, the emails and the internet and at the same time the cellular phones. So we can be in different places at the same time. So we are living a very fragmented life. So that's why I think we are more used to that and it's easier to, to read. Uh, like maybe before it was a little more complex to read for the audience, but now it's normal, I think. Well, I thank you um, very much for your time and good luck with your film. Thank you very much. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Bye. Bye. That was my 2001 interview with Alejandro Gonzalez in Uritu. I'd like to say that I chose to interview him because I knew he'd go on to fame and Oscars. Well, I sort of did. I did know after seeing Amoris Perros that there was undeniable talent there. And yes, I knew he would go on to great success. Just as I know, some of the films from this year's San Diego Latino Film Festival will introduce us to a new generation of filmmakers. As our guide through some of the scary good Latin horror filmmakers, I have my partner in crime, Miguel Rodriguez, of Horrible Imaginings Film Festival, to talk about the films he just programmed for Un Mundo Extraño. Even though these films are screening here in San Diego, I hope you listen to the podcast because you'll be able to find these films at some later point, either on Blu-ray or DVD or streaming online. Plus, by listening to us talk about these films, you'll have your appetite whetted about what Latin horror directors are doing and how they're defining a very particular kind of horror cinema. This is Miguel's third year programming Un Mundo Extraño, and I asked him to define what Un Mundo Extraño means in terms of what films fit the program. The name literally translates to the strange world. So I always come at it from the perspective of what is normally called fantastic film in a lot of other countries, uh, cinema fantastic, which kind of covers horror, fantasy, science fiction, kinds of genres that, uh, you know, they're all kind of lumped together a little bit. And I like that because it really kind of, it lets me as a programmer get really creative about what can fit and, and which films can be part of this showcase because it broadens the horizons a little bit. And in fact, uh, just this year programming, I have had conversations with Moises and some of the other programmers about a couple of the films and whether or not they fit. And there was one film I kind of fought for as being part of my showcase, and uh, and we got that. So I'm, I'm excited. Um, uh, it, it's open to interpretation, but really I'm looking for things that are a little bit on the fantasy side, not super realistic necessarily, but uh, but there's a lot of metaphor for things that are going on in the real world as subtext. And uh, and sometimes, too, we're looking for some really crazy stuff. And I think we found it this year. <laughs> I'm excited about this year's program because I think it's one of our better years overall. And I hope that everybody who comes, because you're all going to come, will agree with me. One of the films which challenges kind of what you might expect from an Mundo Extraño film is Los Decentes, mm-hmm. which... I enjoyed. I thought it was great and bizarre, and it takes a huge kind of left turn at the end that you don't expect. And we won't have spoilers, but tell me a little bit about this film and what attracted you to including it. Okay, so it's funny. Um, I just did a podcast with interviews with some of the directors, and I started the podcast with going through each of the films I selected, and I started with Los Dicentes 
because I called it the outlier film uh, in a way. But also in a way, it fits perfectly. You just have to kind of deal, explore it a little more. In my introduction to Umundo Extraño, I, I talk about some of the different themes that we're hitting, like the the limits of human endurance and, and so forth. But I also say something about bizarre colonies or unusual colonies. And, and Los Dicentes, would, that's actually the film I was talking about with that description. Uh, Los Dicentes, it's kind of a dark comedy. But that might be a off-putting descriptor because although it is very darkly humorous, to say it's a comedy might write it off for some people because there, there's a lot going on there. This is a film that is a collaboration or a co-presentation of uh, Argentina and Austria and one other country that is eluding me right now uh, by a director named uh, Lucas Riner. What's fascinating about it, and one of the reasons I chose it, is you have this woman who, <laughs> who is the, who, uh, we'll call her the, the straight character, and by that I mean she's very normalized, very traditional, she has a very blue-collar job, and she suddenly discovers that right next to her where she's staying is a, a group of people who are the opposite of that and, and who are kind of, dare I say, in at least in her point of view, threats to her status quo. Actually, it's not a spoiler at all to say it's a nudist colony. Uh, so on top of the, <laughs> the nudist colony and these aspects, the characters that populate that colony are really kind of over the top and out there. Some of them, you know, they'll wear makeup and they'll crawl around like animals. And the kind of uh, the friction that happens when these two worlds are placed right next to each other, adjacent to each other, it just builds and builds and builds until it kind of explodes. Well, and it's right next to kind of this very wealthy, gated community. And she's a maid. So you've got class hierarchy involved in this as well. As as well as the the kind of, um, what, what do we call it, societal, polite society the comedy of polite society uh, together. Yeah, yeah, classes as well as cultural mores clashing. And yeah, they, they come to a head in really interesting ways. It's it's funny to try to talk about this without giving away some of the things that make this uh, a unique film and one that fits Un Mundo Extraño, other than to say uh, the characters are so colorful and the ways that they react to each other are exaggerated just enough to give it a strange kind of hyper-real air that uh, it fit, for me, it fits the program. Well, we're going to bring this up again probably, but the Latino Film Festival this year has a tribute to Arturo Ripstein, who is a veteran filmmaker with a large body of fascinating films. And he grew up on his father's sets and knew Luis Buñuel. And both of those filmmakers seem to have an an odd sort of influence on Los Docentes. And part of it for me was that the Buñuel aspect is kind of the class differentiation and the, the kind of bizarre way that it's not 
part of the real world. Like they're kind of ridiculous. And the commentary comes from kind of that contrast between how ridiculous these rich people are to this hardworking woman. And and then the whole moral question kind of echoes some of Ripstein's stuff. And so it seems like this is one of the descendants of Ripstein and Boonwell in an odd sort of way, which makes it an interesting continuum. Well, it's certainly very Ripstein-esque in the 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 subtle exaggeration of how people actually are. You know, it's not caricatures, but they're not quite grounded either, these people. And it's just enough for us to take notice and be completely engaged with the people on screen, but not enough where we where we think I mean I used the term over the top before and even that's too strong. They're definitely because it's very deadpan out, on a certain yeah, level. Totally, <laughs> totally deadpan, and that's what works is the deadpan way that not just how these characters present themselves, but how this woman, the decent woman uh, of the English titular, reacts to them. They they work because. They're done with such not just sincerity, but without any kind of winking at the camera. Very straight, played very straight, and and the 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 absurdity of those two things. Again, there's a juxtaposition of the ex- absurdity of the image with how it's being delivered that fits that makes it all the more a bizarre and and enriching experience to sit down and watch it. I mean, I'm. I'm excited to see it on the big screen because I only got to see it on a computer screen. And I think it'll be so much you'll be able to catch so much more nuance with the the way their eyes are and the gestures and, and, and things like that that I'm looking forward to seeing presented in a way I think it was intended. And I'm very interested to see the audience reaction because <laughs> I think that's gonna especially when it kind of takes that huge left turn and I'm curious how much of a gasp you're going to get kind of yeah. <laughs> at a certain point. It's impossible to talk about the twist. Uh, not I, really you know a twist. It's, it's not, it's so not much a, twist. a twist. It's kind of a logical progression. <laughs> it's leading you towards something. You know, in a sense, it's 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 a film that depicts an act of rebellion. Yes. And it's <laughs> not so much a, a surprise as you just didn't expect it to quite go so far. Right. It's it's a leap off the cliff a little bit uh, in, a, in, a, in the best possible yes. way. This one's hard to market because the, you know, the trailers and the posters and some of the images when I when I put that out there and, and try to promote this one, I've even had people say, oh, I can't wait to see this film. I can't wait to see this film. Uh, I'm wondering about uh, The Decent Woman or, or Los Decentes. I'm not sure about that. And I was like, no, no. Come see this one. You will be pleasantly surprised or you will be at least entertained by what goes on on screen. Something that fits a little more conventionally into kind of the horror thriller genre is hysteria, which it it shares a certain similarity with Los Decentes in the sense that it is a bit of a slow build where you start at a certain point and it slowly ramps up. And you got to speak to the director from this yeah. film. Carlos Melendez directed this film. Uh, he's a very uh, thoughtful, 
filmmaker, a lot of fun to talk to, and he will be present at his screenings at uh, Latino Film Festival. So we're excited about that, doing Q&As, because he can talk about his films. And one thing that I do appreciate is uh, when a filmmaker can really talk about all that is going on kind of underneath the superficial uh, uh, images on, on screen, it really shows that they had a purpose for making this film. And uh, and you're right, too, about uh, Hysteria and Los Dicentes having a similar theme in that uh, it's kind of like when a person is driven a certain way, what's the breaking point and, and how do we react to things? But while Los Dicentes does this in, in a certain kind of absurd way, Hysteria is far more... The theme in Hysteria is wrath. It's rage and what rage does to us. I believe the director says rage is like a virus. And and if you catch it, you can so easily spread it to everyone around you. And um, we talked about this. uh, It's been compared to Falling Down with Michael Douglas. And the difference uh, is that in Falling Down, there are two major differences. In Falling Down, Michael Douglas loses his marbles at the beginning and spends the whole entire film doing crazy bonkers things in response to that. And also, when he does those crazy things as the audience, we are kind of delightfully along for the ride. You know, when he, when he's firing, we're like, yeah, go get him, break the system. Whereas in Hysteria, it's not a light switch that goes off and this, and this character loses his mind. As you mentioned, it's very gradual progression, and it takes quite a lot for him to reach a turning point. And it's not just him. He's got his wife and then there's work. And all of these people start losing it. They, they start going off the deep end. And when they do go off the deep end and things kind of hit the wall, it's not a release, but it's more, uh, you know, it's presented in a way that's far more um, regrettable. <laughs> Uh, when the director talked about what went into making the film, uh, it was during, you know, Mexico has had a lot of periods of unrest recently uh, for various reasons. They've had lots of strikes, lots of government corruption. Um, none of these uh these requests by the people to f- make things better are being really answered. There's a lot of rage. And he talked about seeing all of this rage around him where people would suddenly lose their minds and and, and snap at, at the smallest things, you know, where traffic can make someone get out of their car with a baseball bat and come after other, you know, <laughs> other uh, drivers. And, and, and he would see this happening on the street and in the news. And, uh, and that's kind of like he thought about what rage does to people and, and that went into uh, the, the, the script, basically, of Hysteria. Now, of course, by the final product, things are – it's a little bit different than that. There are, there are reasons for what happens in the film. This one is harder to peg down as a straight horror film because a lot of it really is kind of more dramatic tension. But, uh, but his point is, you know – the horror can be found in the ordinary, in, in the nine to five, in, in the, the common everyday occurrences that we 
subject ourselves to in, in the current society. Uh, and and wrath is something that we try to suppress. And suppression of wrath can be both necessary, but depending on what outside forces are happening to you, suppression could lead to a sudden combustion. And all of these things are present in the film. And I think I'm trying to talk about this again without spoiling anything, but thematically speaking, that's what this film's about. And really the strength is in the lead actor, I think. I really think he did a great job. Well, you talk about how he's observed some of this wrath in the real world Mm -hmm. around him. And he does use sound really well because there's constantly this flow of news coming from the TV, from the radio. And so as kind of a background element, you're constantly hearing stories about murders and about tortures and about things where people just seem to have lost it. In the conference, the funcionary informed that until the moment there have been 28 bodies in fosas clandestinas, which were found in diverse states of decomposition, although all were incinerated before they were buried, and their identity was unknown until the moment. According to the information, the police acted in conjunction with the violence organized. The Organization of Mundial Health informed that the number of deaths by ebola increased to 3,439 And that really sets the tone for, actually both films do a really nice job of being slow builds, but from the very beginning, both of them give you a sense that something is awry. I want to play a little bit, I forgot to mention this from Los Decentes, but the music (laughs) is crazy because you're seeing this woman who's just a very kind of... On a certain level, stereotypical maid, she's very quiet, she doesn't, um, you know, make waves or anything like this. But there are moments where she's just walking with this determination and the music. I want to play some of this music because you hear this music and you know something is going to go terribly wrong at some point. That's kind of your early key <laughs> to Los Decentes in, in terms of where that might head. And in uh, Hysteria, I think it's these news reports that set the tone that something is just bubbling underneath. And what, what's perfect about that is I feel like that's so analogous to just getting on Facebook. But if you're watching a film, if you're a filmmaker, how do you present the feeling you get when you go on Facebook and you just want to kind of kill some time and see what your friends are up to. And it is just a constant barrage of rage and fear and and just negativity. Well, one way you can do it is with these, this audita- auditory bombardment of essentially similar kinds of things. The media's focus on the negative and how much of it is around us and how much that can take its toll. And also, one thing that uh, the filmmaker did bring up as well is he he tries to find, not in the film, but for philosophically, he tries to think about, you know, what are some of the things that contribute to uh, who we are as people that can put us on this path 
toward destruction. And uh, and he th- was thinking of things. He went to bi- the director uh, Melendez. He went to business school, and he said business school in Mexico, uh, you get constantly bombarded with. You need to stomp on everyone around you and be number one and and always you know race ahead to the front of the line and and he says you get told that every day, and he got to thinking is like what does that do to us, to our psyches hearing something like that, and on top of that, getting advertised to constantly with advertisements that say, you deserve the best. You need this yogurt because you deserve it. And so you get, you know, there's this kind of (laughs) uh, cultural effects on us where we're both told that we deserve the world and that we need to crush everyone around us to get it. And, you know, what does that do to us as people? And it's just a question, but it's an interesting idea. And I, I wonder how much of that exactly gets into the film, but it's something that he was thinking about while writing the script. And uh, and I think that the kinds of emotions that, uh, that he's talking about are in there, even if the story isn't necessarily um, uh, uh, explicitly about that, other than really the story in Hysteria is you've got this uh, kind of working schmo, he's an architect, and he ends up involved in some shady dealings and succumbing to his ra- to the dark part of his psyche after basically a film's worth of constant abuse by everyone around him. It is about how we react to outside forces that are working against us. Well, and I think what contributes to him finally kind of exploding is that he starts the film as this kind of moral guy. He's got a sense of values. He's an architect. He's being told you got to use cheaper stuff, substandard things to save money. And he's like, no, no, that's not how we're going to do it. And he initially starts out kind of following this moral code he has, and it just gets him into trouble. And he ends up compromising some of his values. And I think what contributes to rage sometimes is if you realize the role you've played in the decisions, the wrong decisions that you've made, you get even, I think, more angry than if you're just a victim. Yeah, you have your own self to blame for yes. a lot of it. Yeah. And so I think that's part of what for sure makes this kind of blow up to such a degree for him. Yeah, because because he could have stopped it at the beginning. And and that actually speaks to a lot of some of what I think is interesting about his character is at the beginning, he's not just moral, which is true, or ethical, I think is a better word. But uh, but he's he's kind of weak. He's kind of uh, a pushover, I think. And and that goes, you know, in, in all personal and professional aspects of his life. And uh, and I think that kind of. You know, there's a discussion here about the difference between being aggressive and being assertive. Now, uh, starting off kind of that 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 pushover aspect to him kind of leads to both passive aggression and then going further to actual aggression. Uh, whereas, you know, What's what's the balance we can strike when we can? If he had been more assertive, and and full and had more conviction, 
then maybe things would not have gone quite the way that they do in this film. Well, and also you have the notion, cultural notion of machismo and mm-hmm. and things which are... Particularly in Mexico. Yes. which <laughs> But here too. <laughs> which also makes it difficult because there's certain stereotypes that he's sort of expected to live up to that he doesn't. And you could say maybe he's not weak or a pushover. He just has a different method of... Because there are moments where he has to deal with some hooligan types who are outside his his home. And, you know, there are people who say like, well, there's one way to do it, which is to threaten. And there's another way to do it, which is to reason. There may not be a value judgment to place on either of those choices. But within this particular culture, I think he tends to suffer even more because he's viewed, you know, his wife looks to be more assertive and aggressive than he is. So he ends up looking even weaker by comparison to a female. And and in her eyes, which is kind of hard for him to take as well. I mean, that that, that leads him on the path that he's, uh, that he eventually gets, goes down. And also what I like about the film too is his wife is not just uh, an out, an, a force that gets acted upon him. She actually is her own character, and she has her own arc as well. And she goes on her own path. Uh, so the part that she plays, um, I find very interesting, and I think her as an actress too brings a lot of kind of uh, fury to her role. The next film in the Mundo Extraño collection is something that may raise the hackles of some people. It's a found footage film. And a lot of times that falls into a lot of tropes and a lot of formula and and frequently tends to paint itself into a corner because you can't get out of... The why final, are they still holding the camera? Why are they still holding the camera? <laughs> but the the one of the nice twists in this one, 1974, is it uses found Super 8 footage, which gives it a completely different kind of look than most of these films have. It's not that video camcorder look. And there's something about that that has a certain nostalgia and a certain appeal, romantic appeal even, in terms of just the visual quality. Yeah, yeah, romance. It's 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 a almost gothic kind of romance because there is a haunting quality about it. Even if you watch someone's home videos, if they were from from that time period and they're on Super Eight or or eight millimeter, uh, it just depending on the atmosphere in which you're watching it, it can be a little bit creepy, a little bit haunting, just because of the way that the colors are kind of muted and often there's no sound and people are moving in this kind of unnatural way because the frame rate is weird on those old cameras. All kinds of things about them lead to a a kind of unsettling feeling when you're watching it. And uh, so just on the technical aspect and the... the, uh, aesthetic aspect of 1974, I think people are going to really like it. And I thought about the film Sinister that came out a few years ago with uh, Ethan Hawke. And uh, I remember enjoying that film, um, but really what I liked about the film is there are these 8 millimeter little short movies that get played in it. And those are the best parts of the movie. And this one is like a whole thing of that. Uh, so I actually liked it. Um, and I'm also, you know, for me personally, I, I just tend to shy away from the found footage. But when I saw this one, it was like three in the morning and I got creeped out 
it, it had an effect on me. I got really creeped out. I think the use, I was wearing headphones in a dark living room with my computer on my lap. And, uh, and I got really unsettled. And I think the sound contributes a lot to that, of course. And, uh, and just that look of that, that film and the acting, um, it's not like the best acting, but it feels natural. Like I feel like I really am watching a home video for a lot of it, even though things get kind of supernatural, <laughs> for lack of a better term. But uh, but why I like 1974, why I think it's strong, I think this one is a more traditional horror film. Uh, and I think a horror fan would really enjoy this film. And um, the mystery of it. So essentially the story behind 1974 is a family goes missing or a couple goes missing. And eight millimeter reels are discovered that explain what happened. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. And there's just something about mystery and um, you get a little bit with possession and, and things like that. What's going on in this family that uh, it's just an effective thriller, effective horror film because of that feeling of dread. It kind of almost by default instills on you just because the director chose to shoot on 8mm and just to kind of help people appreciate that a little bit. It's not easy to find 8mm cameras now. Uh, And so it took Victor, I'm going to really butcher your name. I'm sorry, Victor. Um, I think it's Driere. Uh, it took him many years to make this. A, because he had to find the cameras and the equipment. He had to find the film stock, which required getting it developed like in the old days and waiting for it to come back before you can see <laughs> whether or not your shots were any good. Uh, you know, lighting things for 8mm, which is just not something that people do anymore. And then having to edit it, too, Uh that that whole process took like something like five years. So this the start of this film predates Sinister. So it's <laughs> it's not even <laughs> it's not even uh you know I thought when I saw this I was like huh I wonder if he saw Sinister and wanted to do a whole film like those creepy eight millimeters and that. But no, it's uh it comes from it, the seed was planted before that film came out. Um, but yeah, I think that this is the one that. Or this is one of the films that a more traditional type horror fan will like, but also one that will get, you know, if if uh, someone likes to go see a film like Paranormal Activity or The Conjuring, this is also going to be something for them as well. I think the centerpiece of Un Mundo Extraño this year is the film called We Are the Flesh. I've been hearing a lot about the film and hearing a lot of talk about how shocking it is and how, you know, people may be offended by it. And, of course, my mind is going to a completely different direction as to what might be offensive in a horror film. And it wasn't that at all. Let's set this up a little bit so people understand what it's like. It's a very claustrophobic film with a very small cast. And it's basically 
kind of this microcosm that's created from these three characters of essentially homeless people who create their own world, which starts very rooted in kind of the real world and kind of a real environment. And then it just goes off the deep end. Yeah, in a way that's different from <laughs> Los Dicentes yes. or, or Hysteria, like like we talked about. This one is – so from, from what I gather, <laughs> this film is a reaction to the way people conflate sexuality and violence, particularly in repressed kind of uh, uh, societies or puritanical societies. The confinement in this film is interesting because everything is very symbolic of, like, the womb. And uh, everything is either very phallic or or very vaginal <laughs> in this film. So there's a lot of sexuality, but sexuality taken to a very bizarre extreme where it's not titillating or exciting. It's kind of dis disturbing and often not just disturbing but it's more about the characters completely relinquishing any inhibitions about any taboos and uh and and exploring the limits of human behavior and and i think that this film is gonna be polarizing i do um but I also think it's very interesting and beautiful. Like there's <laughs> I like the way it's shot. I like the production design, the way the sets are built and the characters, especially uh there's kind of a I liken him to the the visitor in Visitor Q uh where there's this one character who's kind of the catalyst for everything. He's the one who kind of takes these other characters and and puts them on this path and 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 has them do all these kind of crazy things and they they take it and run with it but um the actor that they have playing this kind of almost Mep- I don't know like Mephistopheles kind of character uh he's just so fascinating to look at it he's so slimy and but but he's the, also in hysteria He's also in hysteria. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> he's got an amazing grin that yeah. just... He's, but he's captivating. He, yes, he absolutely. He has so much charisma. Yes. But at the same time, as much as you're drawn to him, you don't want to get too close to him. <laughs> he's kind of filthy, you know? Um, he's got beady little eyes. Yeah, the grin. It's, it's like the Grinch. It's awesome. Uh, so there are things in this film that are very strong. And I remember when I did – this is the first one I requested. Uh, you know, a lot of these I saw and I gave, I said, yes, let's show that. But this one, way back, I think in November, I uh, sent Moises um, email. I was like, we are the flesh is coming out. We need to, we need to get that. See if you can get me a link. Um, and partly because uh, – I know that Alejandro Iñárritu, um, who the director of The Revenant, of course, uh, is one of the people who backed this film, one of the people who funded this film. So uh, I kind of wanted to see his <laughs> his backing on a film that's supposed to be so controversial. Well, 
And the controversy about, I think the controversy is kind of twofold. One, there are a lot of explicit and graphic shots of genitalia, but not necessarily pornographic in any way. And I think it makes people very uncomfortable to see that depicted kind of on a certain level casually and very much as a means of kind of provoking the audience, and especially if you consider it in the context of a very Catholic and somewhat repressed society. So you've got those elements going on. When I heard it was controversial and people were getting upset and I heard it was a horror film, of course, my brain is going to like it must be incredibly violent or graphic or disturbing in that respect. And it wasn't. And again, the title, I think, is incredibly clever because if you hear a film that has things like cannibalism in it and uh, a lot of sexuality and you hear a title, We Are the Flesh... My first impulse was to go to, oh, it's the cannibalism is in the forefront of this. And I know there was a moment in the film where I was watching and I had this kind of epiphany. I'm going like, no, it's not cannibalism. And no, it's not sexuality. This is going back to one of the things that I think make a lot of Latino films really fascinating, which is this notion of Catholic horror. And we are the flesh in this. It does take this sense of a certain kind of transcendence and entering into this kind of spiritual realm in the film that was really surprising and part of what makes the film brilliant. Yeah, I mean— they essentially are in the arc <laughs> in some ways, right? Uh, that they build that out they of build. packing tape and cardboard <laughs> and wood that they find. It's it's an amazing do-it-yourself kind of set that just you see it progress through the film because they're building it in front of you. And they're making it out of these everyday kind of yeah. throwaway things, but the finished product is something so bizarre and, and, and fascinating and incredible to look at. Uh, and I think that, yeah, if you can get past the genitals, then there's a lot <laughs> in this to look at. But that's part of it. I think that, you know, genitals, they're still so taboo. And and when you say that they're in two, it's twofold how it affects people – you know, I think it affects people who just think genitals shouldn't be seen in the first place, even though we all have them. But um, but also for people who well, – let's be honest, it's everybody. But for people who openly watch porn and, and get titillation from pornographic material, seeing nudity presented in the way it's presented in We Are the Flesh might be off-putting as well because it's not – intended to uh, be sexualized, Um, even though there's a lot of sex in the movie. But it's not intended to make us, as an audience member, get sexual satisfaction. It's it's very different. It's very abstract. And I think casual is also a good word for it. I also think of another Mexican film that's much older called Alucarda. Mm -hmm. Um, And... It, Catholic horror again. It's it, and, and that say. one's very overt Catholic <laughs> horror. Like I think the the Catholicism, the the symbolic 
Catholic aspects and we are the flesh are, are absolutely there. there. I don't think there's any question. Um, and when you talk about repression in Mexico, I mean, that's that's Catholicism all the way. But, uh, but you know, it doesn't take place in a church and there aren't crosses all over the place or nuns, <laughs> whereas Alucarda, you know, it takes place in a convent. But, um, you know, one of the differences is that used, you know, sexuality to fight repression in a way that was also sexually titillating. And this is not that. This, this is similar in themes in that way. And certainly, you know, that film was shocking at the time it came out. Um, but uh, but this one is very a very different film, even the, though the thema- the thematics are similar to that one, and uh, and this one also is emblematic, I think, of this new wave of Mexican horror directors um, that seem to be sprouting up. You know, I think it was it was not very long ago. Where if I wanted to find Mexican horror films, it would be impossible. You know, it would be very difficult to find them. But well, late- let's point out that you run a horror festival, Horrible I- <laughs> Imaginings. So you you are looking for them with a, a real purpose That's to try true. and showcase them. So, yeah. We're seeing a lot more out of Mexico, a lot more recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got filmmakers like Lex Ortega. You've got um, Aaron Soto. You I mean, Obviously, we've had we – had, Filmmakers like Guillermo del Toro kind of lead the charge, um, and uh, we had the doc- the um, anthology last year, Mexico Barbaro, uh, or two years ago actually, Mexico Barbaro showcasing a bunch of Mexican horror directors, and in fact, they're making a sequel, Mexico Barbaro two, and one of the people who is directing a segment in that is Carlos Melendez, who did Hysteria. <laughs> so it's this family, too, of, of Mexican uh, genre filmmakers. And I think essentially what happened is in the 80s, uh, there were lots of Mexican exploitation films that were kind of direct-to-video. And a lot of the kids who grew up on that stuff are now suddenly adults and picking up cameras. And it's now easier to pick up a camera and make a film. Um, and they're doing it with uh, they're doing it with purpose overall. Uh, that's what I find fascinating. And when I talk to these filmmakers that we have gotten at Horrible Imaginings or that uh, we program here at Latino Film Festival, I, I tend to ask them, you know, if the if the conversation makes sense, I tend to ask them what they think the Latino point of view brings to genre film. And they all have very interesting answers that kind of go way down deep into the subtext of everything they're telling. First of all, every single one of them, I think, use the word metaphor at some point. Uh, so they're all thinking metaphorically. They're all thinking about telling a story that's really about something else. Um, I see that coming a lot from the filmmakers in Mexico. So when you watch something like We Are the Flesh, it's interesting to try to read between the lines and, you know, seeing the, the Catholic aspects in that film or or the uh, the social unrest that you'll see in Hysteria or Los Dicentes um, or even The Broken Family, that you'll see in 1974, um, because another answer I got that's very interesting is uh, is the the Latino experience is very family focused. You I mean you have people who 
are born, live with, and die w- amongst their family, living in the same house, and it's um, that is that plays a role in the films that get put out. Uh, you'll see that in uh, another film we're going to talk about later, uh, The Darkness or Las Dinieblas, where family is a huge role in that, and in 1974. So um, I'm fascinated to, well, I'm very excited to to not only get the opportunity to program a showcase of fantastic cinema for Latino Film Festival. I'm thrilled that they are going to give films like this a chance and go beyond just kind of the dramas and romantic comedies kind of stuff. But also that we can still use horror and science fiction and, and fantasy to live up to the film festival's mission of presenting the Latino perspective. We can present the Latino perspective through fantasy films. We can present that perspective through horror because it's unique. It has its own voice. And to watch these films and discover that voice, I find awesome. I find really fun. And the cool thing is you don't have to. You could just watch these for entertainment value. So it works both ways. But uh, I, I find it a more enriching experience to say, okay, what is this? This is this was an interesting – We Are the Flesh was a trip. What's going on there that uh, that would lead Emiliano Minter to write that script and put some of that crazy stuff on the screen? Well, and it's also very much, and I guess this also comes, I think, from being in comes from being in a somewhat repressive cultural environment, and it's about kind of pushing boundaries and kind of pushing at limitations, and that's something that Arturo Ripstein's films also did. But there's this sense of pushing at those boundaries, and then this notion of kind of a rebirth involved, which is again why that sense of that look. Lo- that environment being womb-like or being vaginal and giving birth is is something that's really key to what that film looks like. And the one thing I'll say about a lot of the kind of buzz that's been surrounding it in terms of it being controversial and offending people is it's somewhat unfair to the film because I think some people will come to it wanting to be shocked or wanting to see something that's graphic or gory and it's a film that really does have something to say, which is another uh, another film, very different uh, in terms of kind of its style and approach. But a Serbian film <laughs> got a huge <laughs> reputation <laughs> for, you know, pushing boundaries. And but and I, I didn't see it for a while. And I was thinking like, OK, this is going to be a gross out. But that film really had something to say. And this film really has something to say. So I feel that part of the marketing campaign is to build on this sense like this is the film that's going to send you running for the doors or this is the film that's going to shock you beyond belief which may get some people in but will bring them in with some false expectations so i highly recommend if you come to the film which you should that you don't come with that chip on your shoulder saying that yeah gross me out or shock me, but come expecting a serious filmmaker who's making a film that is disturbing, very deeply disturbing on a lot of levels, but not in kind of, I think, that shock value sense that they want you to 
come in expecting. Right. I think Minter is definitely a provocateur, but mm-hmm. but for the right reasons. Kind of like Lars von Trier, too, in, in yeah. that way with a film like Antichrist. Um, they have something to say. Exactly. There's a purpose. There's a mm-hmm. purpose that goes beyond how much can I make the audience squirm. Well, it's okay. Maybe the audience will squirm, but there's a reason for the squirming besides, hey, there's a penis on screen or whatever. Um, <laughs> sorry, everybody. But <laughs> uh, just so you know what to expect. But um, yeah, I, I also think that in a lot of ways, Minter wants to make with these casual shots, he wants to kind of take away. Well, maybe he doesn't want to. I wonder about this. I'd like to ask him, frankly, but to normalize it. Like, um, I think we're seeing more of you know, films like Love or Blue is the Warmest Color or uh, Q, that film, the French film Desire, where uh, you have basically, you know, real sex on screen. And it's not por- it's not pornographic. There are points to those films, too. But uh, but to try and make these things not as provocative just for provocative sake because they're part of human sexuality. They're part of the human experience. We Are the Flesh is a very different kind of film, but uh, I'd like to ask him if he does want to kind of normalize what we see in a feature film um, when it's done for more than pornographic reasons. And pornography, you know, I guess pornography has its place too, but <laughs> this is not that. <laughs> well, and I think Ethan Vantilo, who's the executive director, and Moises Esparza, who is the lead programmer, they really deserve credit and kudos for putting together a festival that really has diversity and that they're willing to take risks on not just Un Mundo Extraño as a sidebar, but in some of the other programming as well. There are a couple of other films that I've seen, Obscura, Animal, and and The Ornithologist, which are films that really push the boundaries of what mainstream filmmaking is like. I mean, both of those films are almost pure visual storytelling. And Oscura Animal has next to zero dialogue. And I found it such a riveting film because I felt like I had to pay so much more attention because nobody was telling me what was going on and giving me all this plot exposition. I had to actually pay attention and watch those images to pick up on what was going on. So I really commend them for being daring enough to program some of this stuff along with romantic comedies and documentaries and and films that, not to discredit them in any way or to uh, demean them in any way, but they're a little more what you expect when you go in to a cinema. And you can take genre films like romantic comedy and do them exceedingly well, but they're very different, I think, from these films that deliberately are kind of pushing the envelope to say, let's try and make cinema something that's different and not necessarily comfortable. Yeah, no, definitely definitely going beyond getting people out of their comfort zones. And I I give them credit, too, for letting me program some of this stuff. <laughs> uh, it could be alienating for, for a lot of their audience. Well, particularly We Are the Flesh. I think the other films, people will get a little bit more. You know, Moises, I was actually looking for... <laughs> For the email, 
because uh, I, I requested the film and he got the link and then I didn't answer him for a while and he sent me an email that says, did you check that film out yet? And <laughs> the next line says, it is dot, 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 a little crazy. <laughs> 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 it's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> And the last of the feature films that are going to be showcased in this year's Un Mundo Extraño is The Darkness. Yes. Which fits a little more conventionally into the horror genre. Mm -hmm. We have A Cabin in the Woods even. Yes, we do. (laughs) Um, So it's post-apocalyptic. One of the things that I think, um, yeah, I think conceptually it fits into horror sci-fi. Um, and fantasy, even. It's a fantastic film. It's the definition of a Mexican fantastic film. But um, at the same time, you've got this director, Daniel Zimbron. He is a painter, um, and he brings that sensibility and the palette to the film. And in fact, uh, the characters in it draw pictures, and the father makes these marionettes that he uh he basically makes these analogs of his children and tells stories for them, kind of these um, didactic fables using the marionettes. And everything is designed. It, it's really interesting. It, it really adds a visual flair to the film. And uh, and the director, actually, he's the artist who does those as well on top of making the film. And I asked him, I said, you know, did the story come first or or did an image come first? And... He admitted that uh, while parts of the story have been something that I've been doing, the uh, the settings and and what sets up the the uh, location that all came from an image that he drew of a forest covered in mist and and I love that I love when something like one image can create a whole backstory behind it. And he was, you know, he was very interesting to talk to as well because he likes think to. Uh, he is another one who talks about the subtext. Talks about how this is a film about, um, you know, social unrest. But I want. I don't want to make a movie about. Re- I don't want to make a movie that is realistic. I want to make a movie that is about realism. Discuss, you know, with through the veneer of, of fantasy, and what you have here is it's a very it's a family film. In, well, it's not a film for family, but it's a film about a family living in perpetual darkness. So the title of the the film is um, is accurate. The air is kind of toxic, so they have to wear these gas masks, which lends it another kind of amazing quality. And there are these humanizing moments among the family when they're in this cabin together. (laughs) It's their home. They're barely surviving in this kind of hostile environment. And the conflict of the film gets kind of set off when there's a sudden malevolent and mysterious force 
that de- descends upon the cabin, and they end up having to leave, and uh, leave basically the con- the uh, safety of their of their sanctuary. Um, but yeah, what really brings the darkness uh, and gives it a unique quality is its visual style, and the, um, the it vacillates between very dreamlike uh, narrative and very rooted and grounded narrative, and it goes from one to the other in a way that is not confusing, but rather kind of seamless and, and tells the story and gives you these characters' external world and their internal worlds. Um, so it's a lot of fun to watch. It's a um, brilliant atmosphere. And um, the, the main character is actually um, Brontis Horowski, Alejandro Horowski's son. Um, from El Topo and Santa Sangre. So to see him, he was actually in this director's first film, Tao, as well. And they work really well together. He gets a great performance out of Prontis. And um, another interesting thing to note is that the these two films, Tao and then this one, The Darkness, are part of what he calls his uh, trilogy of light. And uh, the first one takes place in a desert, and this one takes place in perpetual darkness. And other than that, uh, there's no narrative ties between them. It's more a conceptual tie. But, uh, but it's about how people react to their surroundings and, yeah, the way the human condition can change according to our environment. It's, it, I, I think people will really like the darkness, um, particularly because, you know, just visually it, it's – it will appeal to the casual horror fan as well as someone who's looking for a little bit more. Well, you mentioned that these filmmakers repeatedly talk about this notion of subtext and about metaphor. And I think on a certain level, being in a country where there is a sense of repression makes you want to turn to that because it's harder. You grow up under conditions where it's harder to directly address something because you do feel like there's this pushback if you want to talk about something like sex or you want to talk about something in the Bible that you maybe don't agree with. You don't want to do that necessarily directly. And again, I return to Arturo Ripstein, who you know, he's a filmmaker who's very well accomplished, who could easily, if he wanted to, leave Mexico and go somewhere where his films would cause less controversy, not meet with the same sort of censorship issues. But he's talked about the fact that that repression and, and that particular culture he grew up in is what defines him as a filmmaker and that sometimes having to meet with those kind of censorship issues, I, I believe the phrase he used is it makes you walk like a reptile and you have to be more clever than them and that sometimes that really encourages the artistry because you aren't dealing directly with a topic. And it sounds like these filmmakers are all talking in these terms that are making their films a little richer because you can take them on face value or look at that subtext. Yeah, I think you just nailed it. And and yeah, I think that, uh, you know, Ripstein, when he said, was, were you talking about also like film noir with it? Like noir did that back uh, in the 50s too. Is it, it In a different sort of way, it, but yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it dealt with um, controversial things, but disguised by language and, and um, shadow. Uh, but but yeah, it was obviously being in Mexico and having uh, 
you know, the Mexican film industry has had a very interesting history, too, whereas it's largely government funded. And certainly when it was booming, like in the 50s, early 60s, 40s, that was a lot of government stuff. And when government funding was suddenly kind of cut off in the late 70s and 80s, you ended up having a lot of these kind of rogue filmmakers doing very independent cinema. And I think the the spirit of independent cinema is living on in this new wave of Mexican filmmakers. Um, but uh, they're also politically charged. And, and you know, politics has a lot of different uh, definitions and, and what makes them politically charged could mean different things. But they have passions about certain ideals that they have and they are imbuing these films with those ideals and from the films that I'm getting and choosing anyway they are not doing it in such a way that it's distracting from the story they're doing it in a way that's that's natural that that you can tell tell you can have these themes but not be so didactic or, or you know, teachy, <laughs> preachy with your film. Uh, I think that's an art, uh, a fine line to walk, but one that is also the mark of a great artist. These have all been feature films that we're talking about, but there is going to be a short block, a shorts block, which you can get a little bit of diversity in a condensed amount of time if you don't have the chance to see five separate movies. So, And there's one short in here from a filmmaker whose work you've actually showcased. Yeah, um, Abraham Sanchez is doing – He's. Uh, I don't know if he still lives in TJ or Tijuana. I think he moved away unless he moved back, but uh, – He's doing a, 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 a film called Devastation. We've we've shown some of his old, um, his other short films at Horrible Imaginings Film Festival. So it's nice to see him represented here. And he's visited the film festival. He's visited the Latino Film Festival before, um, along with Aaron Soto, who is showing some of his films. So it's great to see Sanchez come with some of his own work and. And uh, hopefully we'll see him at the festival. I'll have to drop him a line to see if he's going to present at the short film block. So that's the Un Mundo Extraño sidebar for this year. It's something that you are always looking for in for your festival, which is going to be coming up in September. And so have you seen an increase in Latino films coming to you that are strictly in the horror genre? Oh, yeah. We always see a ton. And, you know, if we're going to con- <laughs> if we're going to include Spain in this, Spain has always just had this insane output. But um, let's focus on Mexico and, and maybe some of um, South America as well. We're seeing a boom in those, definitely from Mexico. And... Uh, and as I look through some of our submissions now, I don't know if I'll, I can't say any titles because, <laughs> because then suddenly this will get out and they're going to think they're definitely accepted. And I can't accept anybody yet. But uh, I have my eyes on some um, that just like some of the films we've discussed today as part of Un Mundo Extraño, they are out there. They're, uh, this one particular programmer calls it kind of oddball. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's what I'm. That's what I love is I feel like in Me- this one's from Mexico, 
And there seems to be a, a willingness to experiment, you know, uh, and I don't mean in a kind of like annoying student filmmaker kind of way, but a willingness to push the boundaries of conventions, a willingness to test the limits of tropes and uh, or abandon tropes altogether and, and show something completely different, uh, yet still uh, explore the dark side, still kind of get into our uh, kind of our ids or our Mr. Hides, if you will. Uh, that's really all I'm looking for as far as horrible imaginings goes is I want to define the word horror as exploring these kind of um, uh, unmentionable parts of our psyches, you know, the parts that we want to pretend don't exist but definitely do. Uh Basically, any film that will go there and, and explore the darkness is something I'm interested in. And that could be, you know, Jason Voorhees running through the woods, I guess. But, you know, I, I, I'm looking for a greater uh, variety of expressions of that. And I'm seeing that from Mexico. I'm seeing that from Latin America. And uh, and I really hope to uh, to have something really great this year. In fact, man, dare I say this? Um Aaron Soto is programming for us. The last couple of years, he's come on and he's done a panel. This year, he's actually going to program a showcase of uh, what we're calling Frontera Horror. Um, And for anyone who is unsure of that word, border horror. uh, The horrors of living from a Mexican perspective, living on the border or trying to get across the border or trying to find a better place or everything that is associated with our strained relationship with Mexico, particularly these days, um, we're looking for films that are going to showcase that in the disguise of a horror or fantastic film. And uh, and I have Aaron helping me out with that one. He's a filmmaker, and uh, he's also very passionate, and I can't wait to see what he comes up with. All right. Well, once again, I want to thank you, Miguel Rodriguez of Horrible Imaginings. And also people should go to his podcast because a number of the filmmakers you've mentioned are highlighted on your podcast. Yeah, I did interviews with uh, Carlos Melendez of Hysteria and uh, Daniel Zimbron of The Darkness. And I have an interview planned with Victor Dreyera of 1974 at the festival and perhaps you'll be seeing some Facebook Live video from San Diego Latino <laughs> Film Festival coming up in the next 10 days. So follow us on Facebook. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks very much. Oh, thanks. As always, this is always fun. That was Miguel Rodriguez, founder of the Horrible Imaginings Film Festival and programmer for Un Mundo Extraño at the San Diego Latino Film Festival. Moises Esparza is the programmer for the overall festival, and he's one of the most thoughtful people I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing about film. He's been a programmer for the festival for four years, and I asked him what that's been like. So in the last four years, we've definitely seen an increase of awareness of our festival. Every year we get more and more submissions, and we also, I think, have done a much better job at connecting with U.S. Latino filmmakers which has always been a goal for festival. This year we have a showcase specifically dedicated to the U.S. Latino filmmakers making movies. We want to 
make sure that these voices are heard and that these individuals feel included. One of the criticisms that our festival has received in the past is that we may pay too much attention to specifically Mexican filmmakers or um, South American filmmakers. So we want to make sure that attention is paid to Latino experiences being produced all over the world, you know, and including domestically. I think that's a really important uh, perspective. This year, I'm wondering if the political climate that's going on is affecting the festival in any way in terms of the purpose you feel a festival should serve, especially in a border city with a political climate where we're talking about potentially Trump wanting to build the wall and with travel bans and things like that. Does the festival feel energized in any different way to kind of tackle those issues through film? It absolutely does. This current election occurred just as we were starting our screening process and the Latino community was largely under attack by this incoming um, administration. So it was definitely in the programmers' minds to book films that were authentic and emphasize celebrating the diversity of Latino experiences. So we hope that our festival is in a way a safe haven for for Latinos and individuals will be pleased to read our welcome letter in our program because it emphasizes the importance of traditions and unity and safe spaces. So we want the Latino community here in San Diego to know that we are advocating for them through the type of films that we screen at our festival. Well, it also seems with all this talk about building a wall, festivals and art always seem to be a way of breaking down those walls. Exactly. And we have always celebrated filmmakers from both San Diego and Tijuana and the perspectives that they provide on immigration are some of the most emotional ones that I've seen committed to film. We have a short film called Exile this year, which is about a veteran who had to go back to Mexico and was split from his from his family, and they have to connect through the fence that's near the water and the ocean. So it's just like very emotional filmmaking, and I hope that for individuals who've maybe attended a festival and I don't know who may not have always seen the Latino side. I hope that some of the films maybe open up their minds and their hearts to some of the hardships and difficulties facing Latinos today. Are there any titles in particular you'd want to highlight or any sidebars? Yes. So speaking to um, this political climate, um, we we have a film called Forbidden, Queer, and Undocumented in Rural America. And it's about a, um, a young student who wants to pursue higher education in North Carolina. And he's unable to due to his... Um, citizenship status. Um, so the film kind of traces his struggle to you know, make a living and uh, fulfill his dreams. Um, and I think it's a story that will resonate with a lot of uh, San Diego uh, filmgoers and the San Diego community at large. Um, in terms of other sidebars, we're really excited that we're bringing back uh, tributes, which we haven't done in the last at least four years since I've been here. So we're doing a tribute to 
world-renowned and acclaimed Mexican filmmaker Arturo Ripstein, who will be here in person to present uh, his really amazing film, um, Deep Crimson, uh, Profundo Carmesí. Uh, so he'll be attending that screening on Friday, March 24th. So we're really excited that one of the titans of Mexican film is joining us for the festival. Besides that tribute, we'll also be doing um, a showcase for Manolo Caro, who is um, a young filmmaker also from Mexico, who is in his own terms redefining, redefining the romantic comedy or the romantic film, and he does it with such intellect and grace and style. Um, so we're really excited that he'll also be attending the festival. And his appearance date is uh, Friday, March 17th. Um, and then we'll also have another tribute for Maria Rojo, which, who is one of the greatest actresses in Latino cinema. Uh, she started Maria Navarro's um, early 1990s film, Danzón, and that was, in a sense, her, her breakthrough role, even though she had been acting you know, since the 70s. So we'll be screening Danzón on March 21st, and she'll also be here for that screening. So we're excited that we get to provide our audience members with the opportunity to engage with with artists. And I think that really sets um, festivals apart from from the regular movie-going experience, is that one-on-one interaction, and you get to hear about you know, essentially how the movie is made, inspirations. Um, I always like to engage with audience on what they thought about the film's themes and plot. So it's always neat to hear the artist's experience, not just the curator's experience. So I think our guests will definitely, definitely enjoy having that perspective. Now, picking Arturo Ripstein for a tribute is great. He is not, however, probably a well-known name to American mainstream audiences. If you had picked someone like Guillermo del Toro, everyone would be able to name some of his films. What is it about him? Because he's a really fascinating filmmaker. He is of Jewish descent, Jewish-Russian, I believe, descent. His films have run into some issues with censorship Mm -hmm. in his own country. You know, he's had an ability that he could move someplace where he wouldn't face censorship. However, he kind of feels that is part of what defines him as a filmmaker. So what was it about him that made you want to pay tribute to him this year? Well, Arturo Ripstein's cinema is essentially a huge mirror to Mexican society. So he presents themes like patriarchy and or, and how patriarchy is treated um, in Mexico and handled in Mexico. And he essentially built upon those themes only to then subvert them uh, through the different um, cinematic uh, techniques at his disposal. And he is essentially dismantling these systems of sometimes, you know, systems of oppression that afflict um, the Mexican family. Um, And he essentially just subverts them in such clever and smart ways. So his his cinema always feels fresh. It never feels dated. Uh, The themes that he deals with are, in a sense, timeless and he is, you know, and we describe him as both an icon and an, and an iconoclast because he is so well respected within the Mexican community. But at the same time, he does take a hammer to a lot of um, conventions in Mexican culture that are seemed almost that are deemed almost to be you know untouchable. 
And what he does with his cinema is, in a way, revolutionary. And it makes some people uncomfortable. So he has run into issues with censorship. But he is such an, a true artist that he stands by his, by his perspective. And he is an inspiration to all of the other filmmakers you name, like Guillermo del Toro, um, Alfonso Cuaron. So, you know, I don't think Mexican cinema would be where it is now without um, Arturo Ripstein's contributions. Well, he seems to be somebody who's always pushing the envelope and challenging conventions. And like the French New Wave directors, I really am impressed by the fact that even though he's been making films for decades, his films feel like they're the works of like a young person who's rebellious and still feeling that, that drive to do something different. Yes, and that's something that I think sets him apart from any other filmmakers, that there's such energy to his films. And, you know, it's surprising that a lot of the films that we're screening aren't available on DCP or digital formats. And it seems like in order to preserve these movies, we need to keep screening them so people, so the, um, the awareness of them will be heightened so then we can push to preserve the movies, uh, or his movies at least. So getting the movies was a bit of a challenge. And I think if people rally around filmmakers who are, who are maybe not as commercial, um, or a little bit on the, um, or are or, 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 or outliers, they'll be able to, you know, motivate different production companies or distributors to restore and keep um, distributing some of these amazing works. As a programmer, I know you try to program a diverse array of films, and you're going for some films that are going to have a mainstream popularity or be crowd pleasers, but you also program some great films that are challenging in the best possible way. Mm -hmm. And I have to say, I was watching a couple of the screeners, and two in particular stood out as being such visual storytelling. In a lot of mainstream films, you watch the first opening minutes, and you pretty much know where you're going in the film and what it's going to be about. You're in a revenge story, or you're in a romantic comedy. And both did not announce where they were going until practically the end. And it was great because it was riveting in a way that's very different from watching a lot of American mainstream films. So what went into your selection process for films like that? So for the ornithologist and Oscar Animal or uh, Dark Beast, what really impressed me about these films is the filmmaker's confidence in the visual storytelling. And I think sometimes we forget that cinema is all about the image. Sometimes filmmakers rely too much on expositional dialogue and they don't trust that their audience will be able to follow along with, with visuals, with images. And what's impressive about um, these films is that they're largely um, without any dialogue. So it's really up to the spectator to invest in the visual storytelling and that to me seemed really refreshing and bold. And I think it'll scare away a few of our patrons. But I think that for both films, they'll, if they stick it out, they'll find really rewarding experiences. 
And they'll also realize that when there are moments of dialogue, they'll see that it kind of takes away from the overall power of the film. Um, like I said, there's not, you don't need someone guide, holding your hand and guiding you from point A to point B in a film. It's all about the experience. And these two films in particular are about journeys that several characters are taking um, in not populated area uh, regions. And so you almost feel like you're a part of, of this almost silent odyssey. Um, and with the orthonologist, if you give you what, give yourself to the film, I think you'll be amazed at how darkly funny it may be and how, um, how light it is, you know, when, when you think about it in retrospect. Um, and the film is essentially um, a queer interpretation of um, St. Anthony of Padua. It just goes, at the end of the movie, goes somewhere truly revolutionary and something that I've never, I mean, I, I haven't seen it um, done that well in any film, or at least the, the ending. Um, so I think, I don't want to give anything away. I want to talk about it, but I don't want to <laughs> give anything away. Um, but definitely worth watching. And festivals are here to challenge any preconceived notions of cinema that you may have. And sometimes uh, spectators are wary of whatever's avant-garde or experimental. But I hope that festivals provide a great, you know, almost introduction to these type of cinemas that exist in the world or aren't necessarily accessible um, in the mainstream. Um, and I think that ultimately attending these films and supporting these type of Latino experiences are, are really rewarding. And you will just become a more intellectual and um, savvy filmgoer. Well, I think what I found interesting, especially about uh, Oscura Animal, was that I felt like I had to pay more attention because it wasn't telling me everything up front. And so the kind of engagement I had with the film was a little more intense in an unexpected sort of way. Absolutely. And the film does go to some pretty dark places and since you're not necessarily being told what's going on you really feel like some of the events that these um, the women protagonists go through are almost that, that, that you're almost a part of them or that you're almost complicit in them and it's a very engaging film going experience it doesn't necessarily end in a very wrapped up way there's no this is the end and happily ever after. But in a sense, you do feel relief for these characters and you do feel that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So it's not all bleak and darkness with <laughs> with Oscuro Animal. Um, and it's it, it's just such a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful film. And, you know, I hope that festival goers take a chance take a chance with it and like I said I think that they'll be really rewarded what was interesting too is that I don't think there was much dialogue at all in the film but there were moments of music coming on on a radio or on a car stereo that contrasted with all this silence and forests and you know stuff that we were seeing prior to that 
Yeah, so the sound design in the film is particularly extraordinary. And I think the scene that you're referring to is when um, a member of the paramilitary um, shows up at this at this woman's house, and the first thing he does without saying hello or you know a greeting is he just turns on the music. Since the film had been so largely silent up to that point, it is really shocking to hear the music. And when I watched it, like my my heart rate quickened. It turned into a most very suspenseful film-going experience. And it just shows that you know beyond the power of the image, cinema can really engage all of your senses. And the Oscar de is one that does not you know skimp on engaging. Um, the visuals with the auditory. Um, and then there's there's another scene where two characters are eating and you hear, you know, the the, the mouth chewing, the, the food being cut up, and it just, just those sounds that they just sound so unfamiliar. It's almost like you're being introduced to them for the first time. And you're just like, wait, what is, what am I listening to? Why does it sound so weird? And it's only because there's been such a huge absence of dialogue that every sound feels feels new and primitive and a really, really exciting film-going experience overall. Do you see, you talked about the festival being a safe haven in a way for artists and for Latinos to come for a film-going experience, but but is a festival also kind of a safe haven for films that do push the boundaries of convention? Because it seems like you're not going to get films like this playing most likely at a mall cinema. So it seems like festivals are the place where you can have more artistic experiment and find an audience. Absolutely. Um, Particularly with our festival, we take a lot of risks with our programming. We like to be inclusive of every type of cinema, whether it's the more broad commercial um, romantic comedies to something like Oscuro Animal that we, like we've been discussing. We really want to celebrate any type of cinema that's being produced or all types of cinema that's being produced um, by Latinos. So I think I said this before, but I'm not necessarily here to make people feel comfortable with what we're screening. Um, last year, a patient told me that I, I that a film that I chose that they, they said I offended them, and I said, "Well, this is the type of movies that are being produced in this country. The filmmaker is from this country. This is an experience that this filmmaker wanted to capture on film, and it's authentic in a sense because it wasn't an American going to this country and making a film. It was a homegrown film from this particular." you know, city. If I screen things that weren't representative of what's being produced in these countries, then I wouldn't really be doing my job. And sometimes the cinema that's being produced happens to be very bold and experimental. Um, So that's what I'm going to screen. And the festival's, the festival's mission is not to offend or hurt someone's feelings but some of the films that we screen are really strong and, you know, hardcore. Um, there's a film in our Un Mundo Extraño section, which is horror, um, sci-fi, uh, more of like the darker taste um, in film. Um, it's called We Are the Flesh, Tenemos la Carne. 
and it deals with really, really intense, jaw-dropping, you know, themes. Um, but there's such artistry, especially with the visuals, and it deserves to be seen and needs a platform. Otherwise, no one is going to watch it. And I think a lot of these films need festivals you know, for their awareness, or otherwise they're not ever screened again, or they're not released on home video, or not even released even on Netflix. So festivals are really important being platforms of exhibition for a lot of these lesser-known films that may otherwise be forgotten. And I have to ask, what was the name of that film that offended your patron? Oh, um, it was... <laughs> Um, que Viva La Musica, and it was a film about um, a city in Colombia, Cali, and it was about a woman giving in to hedonistic desires, drugs and sex and music, and someone thought that it was an accurate portrayal of um, their Colombian community. But, you know, I just can't, I can't use that as a reason to not program a film since the filmmaker... You know, I think the filmmaker was actually from Cali. Um, it was based on a book from an experience that someone had in Cali, in Colombia. So I just, you know, if these are the types of movies being produced, then I'm going to screen them. I just can't say I'm going to run, I run the risk of offending someone or hurting someone's feelings. And I just hope that that's not, people realize that that's not the intention behind film festivals. We are here to celebrate these voices that may be unheard otherwise. Well, one of my favorite quotes from all the interviews I've done was from David Cronenberg, where he said, I'm not interested in comfortable cinema. (laughs) No, and I think that's true for a lot of film festivals. We're, like I said, we're not here to, to hold your hand. We're not here to walk you through every step of a film's plot. We want you to trust in your own instincts that you'll be able to understand the quote-unquote point of any film and it is okay to dislike a movie i think a lot of people are afraid of not liking something but that's the thing about cinema is that it's so subjective that it is totally okay to have a strong opinion against any film that i screen and that's valid 100 percent just as long as you know that I'm not trying to offend you. <laughs> That's a takeaway message of, uh, of my role here. Well, for, for me personally, because I see so many films, I really appreciate the risks that you take as a programmer to bring some of these films here that I would never have an opportunity to see otherwise. But you also do offer films that are, if not comfortable cinema, at least can offer... Uh, a little more familiar kind of experience. So what are some of the the kind of more popular films that you might be, the more crowd-pleasing kind of movies that you might be screening this year? We find that there's artistry in both the more commercial um, films and uh, just as well as the more experimental ones. So we're not here to be judgmental. Um, We see great value in all types of cinema. So some of our more mainstream films include um, a movie that was partially locally produced here in San Diego called Ruta Madre, and it's a really funny um, road trip film. Um, we have two romantic comedies from, um, from Mexico. One is called um, Trentona Soltera y Fantastica, so it's a, 
30-something, um, single, and fabulous. Um, and then the other one is called Que Pena Tu Vida. So it's like, it's a shame about your life. So these are all more conventional films, but they do play with their formulas in very interesting and exciting ways. So even though you'll see something that's maybe a little bit familiar, you'll be really impressed by the risk that the filmmakers take by adjusting the formula just a little bit, or maybe a lot in some cases. Um, so like I said, artistry across a spectrum of cinema, and we are just happy to be able to give individuals the opportunity to, uh, to watch these movies. Every year you guys pick a country to focus on in particular so that there's a sidebar of films, particularly from one place. So what country have you picked for this year? So this year we selected Brazil to be our country of focus, and it came about um, because of this documentary that I watched called um, Cinema Novo, which celebrates... Um, the filmmaking movement of the 1950s and early 1960s in Brazil. And the documentary just made me realize how beautiful Brazilian cinema is and how exciting and how forward-thinking it is. And it's, oh, and you know, it was, it, it, it revealed itself almost as like a, a revelation to me. But when I thought about all of the great Brazilian films that I've seen in my lifetime, it just seemed like a no-brainer. Um, and actually in college, one of the most memorable films that I watched was um, How Tasty Was My Little French Man. I don't know if anyone has seen that um, besides that particular film class <laughs> in, in my, in, in, while I was in college. But, you know, seeing Cinema Novo, it reminded me of the film-going experience I had watching this very bold and a little bit crazy film, um, How Tasty Was My Little French Man. I looked. I, I began to take a closer look at the Brazilian options that we had for this year, um, and I found them to be super, super interesting and engaging and exciting, and those films in, in, within the Country of Focus showcase are among the strongest that we have. Um, there, We are screening Simon Novo, this documentary that I just mentioned. Um, we're screening a film about you know, female friendship um, that's done in a very subdued and bold way. Then we're, we're also screening one called Jules and Dolores, um, which is about this story that's, you know, almost, it, that, that proves that truth is stranger than fiction sometimes. And it's about two individuals who think that they're screening a replica of a soccer um of a soccer trophy, but it's actually not the replica. They end up stealing the real thing. So it's a fun and exciting caper film um, that I think will be really, really embraced by audiences. It's, it's just so funny, and it's just done with such flair. Um, it's really, you know, really memorable. You mentioned this documentary that looks back on Brazilian cinema. Is that part of, you feel, a festival's goal as well, is to not just screen brand new films, but to also have a place for remembering classics or remembering films from the past? Yeah, so it, it, it's good that you mentioned that because we always, as a festival, we have goals every year, and one of them this year was to highlight older cinema films that, you know, not just the new stuff, kind of looking back at our history to understand where we are now in terms of Latino cinema. Um, so we're able to do this through these tributes that we're screening, which we're really, like I mentioned, really happy and thrilled about, um, particularly with um, Arturo Ripstein and Maria Rojo, who are such 
figures and such important figures in Mexican cinema that it's a shame to think that there might be a generation of individuals who don't know who they are. Like that just to me is mind boggling. So I hope that through, uh, by screening them at our festival that it'll introduce a new wave of cinephiles to these two amazing individuals who have, who have filmed just some of the most amazing films um, in Mexican history. You're talking about the diversity that runs through the festival, but if people want to get kind of a condensed version of that, you have shorts programs as well? We also have shorts programs, um, and the short film is a mesmer- is really mesmerizing to me, just the, the structure and the format. Short films have to tell an entire story in sometimes a minute, sometimes 10, and that is where you see the true, I think, innovation of cinema. I don't, I don't know if people understand this about short programs, but you're essentially getting 10 amazing films in the span of like 90 minutes. So it's really a deal and a bargain. But sometimes people are a little bit apprehensive about short films, and I do not think that they need to be. I think that they'll really be um, mesmerized by the talent of these filmmakers who have to tell these thought-out stories with limited budget, limited you know, duration, and limited resources overall. And the outcome, the product, is just as good, if not better, than some of these 90-minute feature films that we screen. So there, there will always be a place for you know, the short film format at our festival. As someone who's worked on programming festivals and shorts <laughs> programs. The thing about a shorts program is always like, it's like trusting the programmer to give you a really great mixtape where the flow yeah, of yeah, it right. has a kind of, just the flow of the, the shorts is a story in itself to a certain degree. It, that, that, that's a great way to describe it, the perfect mixtape. It's a mixtape that you give someone revolving around a certain theme and that you trust that the good films are just not the beginning and the end, but that you know everything in the middle is also um, impressive. And I think that our short curator, Juan Lopez, has dedicated so much time to putting these programs together that audiences will not be disappointed. And are there any other films that you might want to highlight, films that could get lost in the shuffle because you're showing a lot of movies (laughs) and you look at the program, which is pages and pages long, you might not know where to turn to find something. So is there something that maybe people might miss that you want to make sure kind of gets highlighted? Yeah, there's one film in particular that has really made an impression on me and that I hope that audiences seek out, even though it's not, you know, the most heartwarming of films. Um, It's called uh, Tempestad. It's directed by uh, Tatiana Hueso. It's a documentary film. It's a film about two women who live completely different experiences but they are dealing with systems of oppression that exist in Mexico that are relevant to not only them, but a lot of people who live in Mexico or who have lived in Mexico. So the film is split into two different narratives, essentially. And the first one is about a woman who was wrongfully imprisoned um, and without giving too much away because that would really take away from the experience you only hear the woman in voiceover, so you don't ever get to meet the subject. And what you do get instead are 
is an assemblage of images that are sometimes indirectly related to what she's narrating. But the mixture of these images and the dialogue make for a really immersive film-going experience. And I watch a lot of these screeners on, you know, a small laptop or, like, my desktop. So I haven't seen some of these on the big screen. So this movie made a huge impact just because of its visuals. Um, from my, you know, from my small monitor, I know that the people who take a chance on seeing it on the big screen are going to be moved very, very deeply by this film. Um, and then the second portion of the film, the second narrative, you get to meet um, a, a traveling circus, and one of the participants of this circus, um, her daughter was kidnapped by local authorities, and you meet this mother who is going through so much pain, yet she has to perform as a comedy clown as her profession. So you get this really interesting juxtaposition of profession and you know what the make the costume, the makeup you put on for your job versus the reality of your identity. Both um, narratives in the film are really wonderfully told, and I hope that people take a chance on Tempestad because I think it's one of the best films that I've seen in the four years that I've seen this that, that I've that I've done this. And this year, how many films did you have to look at, and how many films have you pared this down to? We screened, the screening committee, myself and Juan and all of the other wonderful volunteers who assist, we screened over 700 movies this year. We created an Excel sheet with all of the films, and I think we're at 178 feature and short films, so it's quite, quite a lot of movies. The point of a film festival is to to think about it as a luxurious vacation for yourself where you're going to see a lot of amazing films in the span of five days. So give in to that luxury. Don't feel like you just have to watch one. Really engage. Really take the time to look through the catalog. That's what's so amazing about film festivals that you get to watch five, six movies in a day and then you go to bed and you wake up and you do it all over again. And film going is one of the best, in my opinion, activities. Um, So I really hope that people take the chance on our film festival, and make it out to our movies. And how many different countries are you representing this year? Yeah, so I think we're 20 plus. So we have a lot of diversity within, in terms of countries. Um, so again, we want to present the most authentic and accurate pool of films that are being produced in these countries. And I think we really ex- we have an Honduran film. We have a film from Costa Rica. We have a Panamanian film. I mean, we're just really excited by... The diversity of, of 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 our country of our countries today, or this this year. Sorry. Well, I've always found that there's two approaches you can take to a film festival, and that is one: you go through the program and very carefully select your films and lay out a plan and kind of go in with a a real mission. Mm-hmm. And then the other option, which I tried one year, and I have to say it had amazing results, which is you go down and whatever is playing, the moment you get there, you gamble on. And I had a, a year where I, I couldn't get off of work, and so I would just have to leave work and go down, and I didn't have as much choice as to what I was able to see. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to go. And whatever's starting like within 
10, 15 minutes of when I get there, I'm going to see that. And I saw a few films I didn't like, but I also saw some that I never would have selected based on the description. And they were some of the best films I've seen. So people should not be intimidated about tackling this. You can go any way you want and you'll find amazing things. No, you're absolutely right. You take a very bold approach, very daring. I encourage it. I just think that people should let themselves be surprised. And I think that they will be with some of the selection this year. That was San Diego Latino Film Festival programmer Moises Esparza. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Cinema Junkie is also a proud supporter of Landmark Theater's Midnight Movies at the Ken Cinema. So go check out what's playing Saturdays at midnight. If you enjoyed this podcast, I also recommend checking out Cinema Junkie Podcast 66 about extreme Latin cinema, old and new. It features an interview I did with visionary veteran filmmaker Arturo Ripstein, and he'll be attending this year's San Diego Latino Film Festival as an honored guest. There will be a tribute to him, and he'll be at the festival on March 24th for a screening of Deep Crimson. So check out the podcast and his work. He's amazing. So till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.